You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 229 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. I don't know where in the world you're living, but where I am, summer has arrived and it feels wonderful. In fact, it almost feels too hot to make an episode. At least that is what I hope is the case, because... Honestly, I do not know, because I have recorded this episode in advance. Because I am not at home right now. No, on this day, when this episode is released, I am at the Ayahuasca Conference in Spain. Good thing for you, I have the skills to plan ahead. Otherwise, there wouldn't be an episode today. And it is actually probably very hot where I am in Spain right now even though when I'm saying this I'm not in Spain if you well it's a bit confusing but you know you get the point Um, because you know Spain in June tends to be somewhat sunny and hot traditionally but who knows with the global warming because global warming also means global cooling in some areas so Anyway, enough rambling about this and that. Now, in this episode, my guest is neurobiologist, chemist, and pharmacologist Andrew R. Gallimore, PhD. Currently at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in Japan. He has recently published a book called Alien Information Theory, Psychedelic Drug Technologies and the Cosmic Game. And in this book, Andrew explains how DMT provides the secret to the very structure of our reality. And how our universe can be likened to a cosmic game that we now find ourselves playing. So thanks for being on the podcast. You're absolutely welcome. It's great to speak to you. Can you talk a bit about yourself so the listeners know who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm Andrew Gallimore. I'm a, uh, I guess my working title is computational neurobiologist. I work on kind of computational and mathematical models of brain function, kind of from the um, molecular level all the way up to um, global brain activity. I'm kind of interested in how you can use computer models to understand how the brain works, um, whether it's involved with learning or um, the action of psychedelic drugs. So that's my kind of my academic um, work. But I'm also obviously my main kind of passion in life is, is is psychedelics and trying to understand how psychedelics interface with the brain and with <clears throat> consciousness to generate their uh, remarkable effects. Uh, and in, of course, in particular, I'm interested in DMT, which is what I've been um, studying and thinking about for the last few years. So what is your view regarding what it is, if it's just uh, activating your dreams when you're awake or hallucination or actually a teleportation device or to another world? Well, uh, uh, yeah, that's a difficult question. I think um, 
it's it's difficult to answer that question because people have different ideas. First of all, you know, you have to define your terms. So, you know, what do you mean by a dream? What do you mean by a hallucination? Uh, what do you mean by uh, reality? You know, these are all words that are kind of tossed around as if they were, their meaning is kind of self-evident, but it's not. Uh, and you have to really think deeply about what we mean by uh, real, uh, what we mean by a hallucination, what we mean by the real world, the world that we experience. So <clears throat> I don't think that DMT, first of all, I don't think DMT has anything to do with dreams. Uh, people like to imagine that perhaps DMT is released uh, and, and sort of activates dreams, but there's no evidence for that. This comes from a um, an idea by a scientist called J Jace Calloway back in the 1980s who kind of proposed, suggested, as, as really as an idea, that perhaps dreams were caused by the endogenous production of tryptamines during sleep. But uh, there's been no evidence that that's the case. Um, so, so no, I don't think DMT activates dreams, whether it's whether when you're awake or when you're asleep. I think you know, DMT is uh, primarily, as all psychedelics do, DMT uh, works by modulating brain activity and modulating the information generated by your brain. And it's this information that, under all circumstances, is responsible for uh, your phenomenal world. The world you experience is, uh, under all circumstances, is information uh, generated by your brain. And so, a when a, when the world changes when you take a psychedelic drug, whether it's uh, psilocybin or LSD or, or DMT, what's actually happening is your brain is um, the, the activity of the brain, the information generated by your brain is uh, is altered. And this could be quite subtle um, in the case of, you know, a low dose of, of psilocybin mushrooms, for example, uh, you get a slight shift, a slight, um, not distortion, but a slight um, modulation of, of this information. So the world becomes slightly more fluid, slightly less predictable, slightly less stable, um, slightly richer sometimes. Uh, and, you know, overall, the world changes, whereas that's kind of the lower end of the scale. Whereas at the opposite end of the scale, the kind of the maximum end, you 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 have something like DMT, which has such a profound uh, change in neural activity that actually the world uh, undergoes a, what appears to be a very very rapid, almost like a channel switch. So the the, the world is completely replaced, 100%, um, and you no longer experience the consensus world, but you experience this um, world that basically has no relationship to the normal waking world. And, and, and then the question is, well, where does that world come from? Um, why, why, when when you smoke, smoke DMT, um, does it cause this profound change, this this reality switch? That's kind of the question that I'm interested in. I've never had a dream that was like a psychedelic experience. Only recently, for the first time, I had a dream where I drank ayahuasca, and that part of the dream was psychedelic. But other than that, in my whole life. No dream has ever seemed like what I've seen in a psychedelic experience. Well, that's that makes perfect sense, and that's that's generally the the, the prevailing wisdom on this. I mean, people have actually there are scientists that um, sort of dream phenomenologists who actually are quite interested in the structure and the content of dreams, and they've analysed it in great detail. And there's quite a lot of academic literature on this available. 
uh, where people have actually analysed um, the proportion of time one spends watching television in the dream state or speaking on the telephone. And actually it matches pretty closely the proportion of time you do these activities uh, during waking. So this is what's known as the uh, the continuity hypothesis of dreaming, which basically says that dreaming is continuous with waking. When you, when you start dreaming, you, it's basically a continuation of waking life. It's different in that it can often become slightly more fluid, slightly more erratic, but that's because um, the uh, when you are sort of awake normally, living in sort of the normal stable world, the the world that your your brain is constructing uh, from this from the information it generates uh, is modulated by uh, what's known as in extrinsic information, which is we recognise as sensory information. So information through the eyes and the ears, uh, etc., um, modulates and kind of stabilises and, and directs, if you like, the, the 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 construction of this world by your brain. You lose that in the dream state. Um, the the primary sensory cortices, those parts of the brain that actually receive information from the outside world are shut down or the mechanisms for transferring information from the outside world into the brain are shut down. Uh, and so, uh, but the brain actually uses um, exactly the same uh, techniques, if you like, the same, the brain builds the world in the same way when you're dreaming as it does when you're awake. Um, and people have looked at this, you know, you can measure the brain activity of somebody who's asleep and dreaming, you know, in an MRI machine, they train people amazingly to go to sleep in an MRI machine and they record their brain activity when they're dreaming. And you see exactly the same brain activity. So the brain isn't, uh, you know, the brain knows how to construct this model of reality that, that we know is, you know, your normal waking world. And it tends to do that whether you're, um, awake or whether you are uh, whether you're dreaming um, this obviously raises the, the the very interesting question for me is is why or how um, the brain knows if you like um, how to construct this very very bizarre alien hyperdimensional reality that has absolutely no relationship to the normal world uh, that's that's a, that's the, the big mystery for me uh, and this is what may, makes me lean towards uh, the explanation that actually perhaps there's more going on with DMT than just a hallucination um, because what we know about the way the brain works um, <clears throat> we know that the brain has evolved to construct this model of, of reality and, and really the brain should only know how to construct one model of reality and that's the the model of reality that you experience on, on the day-to-day -day basis or when you're dreaming mainly um, so why then you know, how did the brain learn to construct this DMT space is actually quite confounding. You know, it's it's almost like um, meeting somebody who, who only speaks English suddenly switching when they take a drug to speaking fluent Swedish. You know, that would be, uh, you know, crazy, right? Um, there'd be no explanation for it. You know, how did they learn to do that? Well, it's, 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 it's a similar idea, actually, when you think about what the brain is doing. The brain really does only know how to build one one world, and yet, some for some reason, which is very very mysterious, the brain effortlessly starts to construct this extremely complex um, hyperdimensional space when you present it with this very very simple natural molecule. My experience with uh, psychedelic, uh, when it comes to the visuals, is that most of them are what you would call 
fantasy or sci-fi. They can look very real, but it's something magical about it. It doesn't look real as in our world. It looks like otherworldly, but still real. But the interesting thing is with Iboga, from my experience, that um, Iboga, the vision, the visions are Earth-like real. They're, it's like human beings real, like real animals or whatever you see is real. There's no fantasy or like with DMT or, or mushrooms. It's all real. So I'm, I think that's what separates, at least from my experience, Iboga from the other ones. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I've not had personal experience with iboga, but you, you know, every every psych, different psychedelic drug has its own kind of signature. You know, it, it the way that it interacts with the brain is is slightly different. I mean, the the sort of what we call the classic psychedelics, um, DMT, LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, the kind of big four, uh, but also variants of those. Um, they all they all bind to the same kind of receptor site. The, the main locus for their effects is this 5-HT, this serotonin 2A receptor in the brain. But they also bind they bind in slightly different ways and slightly different affinities. And they also bind to other receptors to, to greater or lesser degrees. So you know the effect is always slightly different um, depending on, on 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 the actual identity of the psychedelic and. Alexander Shulgin, actually, who you will know, who who you know invented a, a large number of uh, of psychedelic drugs and and then pathogens, um, likened this to having an orchestra, whereas the orchestra is like the all the different receptors. And and when you take a particular psychedelic drug, a particular type, uh, you are um, you're raising the, the volume of certain instruments, whereas quietening others, and and the overall effect is is very very different. You see. Um, so it doesn't surprise me at all that even though Ibogaine is actually a, it's a tryptamine, um, as is you know DMT of course and LSD and psilocybin, um, they they each have they have very very different effects. Uh, but you know why does Ibogaine cause these what you call these sort of naturalistic uh, experiences, whereas DMT is very uh, you know, non-naturalistic. You know, it's, it's highly technological, sort of synthetic, you know, inorganic. Inorganic, I think, is is, is uh, the phrase that the word that Graham Hancock likes to use with DMT. It's you know the organic and the inorganic, and, and DMT is definitely uh, the latter. So you know why uh, why is that the case is another really kind of interesting question. I think I would say that if you smoke DMT, or I haven't tried it, but if you or inject it, maybe. It's it might be that, but if you drink ayahuasca, it's certainly organic. Yeah, so I mean that's that's just another interesting question: is why why does DMT have these different effects depending on the route of administration? But of course, what you have to remember is that well, first of all, ayahuasca is it's not just DMT. It's, it's, it's as you know, it's it's a mixture, essentially a mixture of drugs in that you've got at least two main drugs in there: the DMT, of course, the primary. Um, psychedelic, but also the the mao inhibitor, um, you know, harmaline, which is also has certainly in the presence of DMT has 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 its own psychoactive properties. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not I think reasonable to say that you know ayahuasca is just oral DMT. It, it's more to it than that. Um, also, if you actually uh, measure the the blood concentration of DMT in someone who drinks ayahuasca, as they've done. Um, they only reach about 20% of the levels that are reached with someone who um, smokes 
DMT. Um, so even though DMT smoked or injected is very, very short acting in just a few minutes compared to a few hours or a couple of hours with, with ayahuasca, um, you actually reach a much higher level of DMT in the brain. So it's so the different effects, the qualitative uh, difference in the effect may actually be partly due to the fact that the brain is more overwhelmed with the drug when you actually smoke it compared to ayahuasca, where it, it's present in the brain for a longer period, uh, but at a much, much lower level. One way how I value something to feel like it is real is if you can pick something up. And you can do that in waking, in the waking, when you're awake, you know, I can pick stuff up. And I can also do that in a dream. Uh, but I've never been able to do it, or I, I, to be honest, I've never actually tried it. But so far, I've never experienced it in a psychedelic experience. So is, maybe that, is that something that you can prove that it's maybe not real? <laughs> no, because the act of picking something up, this is a, an embodied action that, um, I mean, of course, when you pick up an object, your feeling, you know, your sense of that object is is, is also part of that, your subjective world. So you pick up a, um, uh, a rock from the ground, uh, although, yes, you assume there is a, a rock out there, the actual experience of picking up the rock, you know, the, the, the feeling of it, the weight of it, the sight of it, perhaps even the smell of it, the sound of it, whatever. Uh, these are all uh, part of your, your subjective world. Um, and and this is an embodied world. You know, the world we live in on a day-to-day basis is a world in which we are embodied. Um, and so uh, as, as that's also the case in the dream state, you would, um, um, you know, you experience as I say, a continuation of the normal waking world. And so it's not surprising that you're also embodied in that world. Uh, the difference with um, high-dose psychedelics, particularly high-dose DMT, is that um, you p- appear to be disembodied. Um, your your body doesn't travel with you when you're um, in wherever it is that you are, you're going. So I don't think you can use whether or not you can pick something up. Um, you know, perhaps you could learn to pick things up, you know, in the DM state. Or, I mean, really, what when you say pick something up, you mean manipulating your environment, right? So it's not the act of picking something up, uh, but it's the act of manipulating the environment. You know, you could push something over, uh, or you could, you know, kick something, uh, or you could lean against something, or or you could spit at something, right? Uh, these are all ways of, of 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 manipulating and interacting with your environment. Um, so I don't think it's it's kind of a good idea to just focus on the act of picking something up. Um, and certainly in the DMT state, if you're you know well experienced, you can interact with and um, uh, manipulate your environment. Perhaps not in the same way, in an embodied way, but actually you can manipulate and perhaps you know uh, interact with um, the objects and the beings that are in that space. Thinking about it, when you were talking, I imagine that if you ever managed to have a psychedelic experience where you managed to actually start to touch and lean against things, it could be very dangerous. In I mean, you would like, uh, how would you get back? You know, you'd almost feel like it would be too realistic, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's always the fear, isn't it? Uh, particularly with high dose DMT, is 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 the fear of not coming back and. I think one of the great mercies, at least of, of smoked or injected, you know, in the normal way, DMT, is that it is mercifully brief, and one can't help thinking that that's um, perhaps one of the only things that m- makes it tolerable for most people. Um, you know, having said that, I am very interested in 
uh, actually extending the DMT experience for for much longer than the normal kind of five to ten minutes that you get with a, a uh, with a, by smoking it or by bolus injection, but actually extending it for several hours or even days at a time. You know, that, but that's in the uh, that's in the future. This book you've written, what is it about? So the book is called Alien Information Theory, and it basically it's a uh, kind of the culmination of all of my thinking uh, about psychedelics and DMT over the last um, sort of seven years. You know, I've been writing and uh, lecturing about DMT and psychedelics um, for quite a, a while now, and I, I, you know, I, I knew that I needed to bring together some kind of coherent narrative on exactly what I think. Uh, you know, DMT is and exactly what it's doing and how it relates to my worldview and my the way that I see um, reality. <clears throat> so basically, it's a it's a book about um, you know, really starting from the the fundamental structure of of reality. You know, uh, as a uh, as being constructed from digital information, the idea that we live in a digital reality fundamentally, uh, and moving from there all the way through to thinking about. Um, how this information complexifies you know, through layered um, layered hierarchies of organization all the way through you know through from um, from quarks and up to you know atoms and molecules and cells and organisms and then you know conscious intelligent uh, beings such as ourselves and then how DMT and psychedelics relate to that relate to this idea that the reality is constructed in from information and that that, that psychedelic molecules um, uh, interact with this complex pattern of information that is our world and then is our brain to actually um, um, change it in, in quite profound ways. Um, the original kind of thesis of the book uh, was actually inspired by a, a quote from Terence McKenna a while ago. Um, well, obviously, I mean, he's been dead quite a few years, but um, uh, which was um, the main thing to understand is that we are imprisoned in some kind of work of art. Um, the idea that this reality is some kind of artifact or co construct um, and that DMT is perhaps some kind of an implanted tool or technology. I, I call it um, this like um, cosmic intelligence test. The idea that, you know, you this universe emerges as, as a lower dimensional slice of this higher dimensional structure and within um, this lower dimensional slice that we find ourselves in, there is this technology embedded, which is DMT, and that the, you know, DMT is everywhere. It's um, it's scattered throughout the natural world, you know, almost waiting as this this secret message that re requires uh, an intelligent being um, with you know quite a sophisticated level of intelligence and technological sophistication actually to identify DMT and to. Um, you know that was only done, you know, in the 1950s, uh, and then to isolate it and to develop it as a technology, perhaps for exiting, if you like, this uh, what I call the cosmic game. This, um, you know, perhaps becoming, in a sense, interdimensional citizens, <clears throat> um, so sort of skipping beyond galactic citizenship, um, and actually to the idea that actually our the informational structure of our conscious brain can actually be transcribed and transferred into this higher dimensional system and that that is perhaps the ultimate goal uh, of our existence here is is the, is the kind of um, complete if you like resolve this game um, so 
so yeah, so the the kind of the stages, if you like, uh, of the book go from you know all the way from you know what is information. The first chapter is is, is very very you know goes really from the fundamental here. You know what is information. Uh, people think they understand what information is, but actually, if you ask people to define it, it's actually a little bit uh, vague most of the time. The, the response that you will get. So I, I start from a fairly rigorous. Um, um, discussion of exactly what is information, how does information complexify under certain conditions, and how this how this can this complexification eventually result in the emergence of, of intelligent conscious beings like ourselves that are constructed from information. Uh, and then all the way through to the end and you know it finishes with a discussion of uh, you know a kind of our place in the, in this reality and where we might go from from here. The design and layout of the book reminds me of this uh, like 8-bit video games is that because you have uh, theories of we're living in a simulation um well um no <laughs> i mean the 8-bit idea i mean that i i kind of really like 8-bit art i'm kind of really kind of interested in kind of vintage and sort of digital vintage digital art i think it's really cool for a start um and it gives the the book a very very distinctive aesthetic uh, but also because of the, you know the, the fundamental um basis of the book is it's all a book about information and it's a book about digital information so it kind of makes made sense to me that it you know that i should do all of the artwork and all of the diagrams and uh, illustrations should be done in the in this manner you know it's a very very time consuming decision to make because you know i did everything myself here uh but yeah um you know i i don't think reality is a simulation because simulation Well, what does simulation mean is, is a really good question. Uh, a simulation is, um, you can't have a simulation without the real thing as well. So you have to, if you say this reality is a simulation, you have to say a simulation of what? You know, what, what does the real world look like? Is it, is it like, um, is it a different version of this, the real version? So you know, I, no, I don't think reality is a simulation. I always say that reality is an instantiation of a reality and what i mean by that is it's not kind of it's not a simulation it's not a, a fake or um version of, of a reality it's actually just a different version of a reality it's a digital reality um fundamentally um but i think it emerged i don't think we were created i don't think an intelligence uh, created us as, as such you know I, i'm not an adherent to any form of intelligent design or creationism in that sense but i do think um that perhaps and you know a hyper intelligence you know one of these extremely um intelligent uh, extremely high level intelligences that you appear to confront in the dmt space um could be responsible for the if you like the seeding of, of a universe um and in the book i discussed this at great length the idea that you can have a very simple code that would enumerate all possible universes now that actually uh, wouldn't be it's 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 not out of the realms of comprehension to understand that at the ground of reality you have very very simple uh, bit like units of information the fundamental fundamental kind of digits of reality and these um these interact accord, according to certain rules a certain rule set and depending on the rule set um, the way that these these fundamental bits if you like interact Uh, you may or may not get complex behavior, complexification. Um, so if you wanted to actually create a universe that was within which intelligent beings eventually emerged after, you know, billions of years, perhaps, um, what you would do uh, is not try and find the correct rule set. 
Um, but you would actually simulate or not simulate, you would actually instantiate uh, all possible universes. Um, and that would actually be much, much computationally actually cheaper uh, and easier than trying to find the right rule set. So basically, you, you enumerate through all possible universes, allow them to run, and then within a very, very small subset, you know, perhaps a fraction of a percent, um, you might get interesting uh, behavior and eventually um, you get this layered complexification and emergence of complex uh, behavior over a number of levels. And then we, we, of course, know this. We, we understand the hierarchical nature of reality. You know, we know that you know, our bodies are made from cells and our cells are uh, emergent complex networks of molecules. And the molecules are made from atoms all the way down um, what would fundamentally be that this fundamental digital information at the ground of reality, basically. So, so no. We're not a simulation, I don't think, uh, but we are an, an instantiation of, of a reality. It's kind of a pun, but I have always, or for many years, viewed the universe as some sort of algorithm that evolves uh, bit by bit. Yes, precisely. Yeah, that's exactly the way. Yeah, exactly. So you, you would have a fundamental algorithm that, that dictates how these fundamental bits uh, interact. Um, and you know this algorithm can generate all the you know various you know uh, uh, practically infinite number of different arrangements of these these fundamental rules and um, you know you would you, can, you might imagine this is perhaps a little tweaks on the the fundamental you know constants of reality and and indeed you know mainstream physicists think of, talk about this idea that perhaps you know, the reason that our universe seems so you know fine tuned. Uh, is because actually it's one of a countless numbers of, of, of universes within this multiverse. So it's, it's, it's actually reasonably ma mainstream. Uh, but my approach is um, kind of similar to the approach of a computer scientist rather than a, a theoretical physicist, you know, someone like Jürgen Schmidhuber, for example, who, who, um, who wrote extensively about this idea of, 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 of the computational cost of computing all universes rather than just trying to find one that had interesting behavior because of course you know you can always uh, you know you can always hit the end button and you know, quit um, running universes that don't seem to be going anywhere and then you can select ones that seem to sh that seem to sort of augur the the emergence of, of complexity and perhaps quite interesting behavior that could one day see the emergence of beings such as ourselves so you know i, I see ourselves as being within that kind of lucky universe, if you like, um, within which complexity emerges. And DMT is this tool that's been implanted or embedded by um, intelligences from outside of this this very you know this lower dimensional slice. Um, and the idea being that we can access this high dimensional space, uh, the uh, high dimensional container reality, if you like, um, which we, within which our lower dimensional slice is embedded. Um, with the ultimate aim, perhaps, of transferring ourselves into this high-dimensional system. I always liked the uh, the metaphor of the video game Minecraft because it's I, I I'm not a programmer, but a fairly simple code that generates quite complex worlds, and and that generated world can be even more complex when you start to play with it. Oh yeah, yeah, and this is this is the this is kind of the really the, the the key point is that complex you know simple rules can give rise to extremely complex behavior and this is exemplified of course by john conway's game of life which is a it's called a cellular automaton which is 
basically it's a square grid, a grid of squares, uh, each of which can either be at any point in time can either be black or white, dead or alive, basically. And there are four simple rules. Um, so each square, depending whether it's black or white, will look around at its its uh, its neighbors, its eight neighbors, uh, and, it, and depending on their current state, whether they are um, you know black or white, it will then update its own state. And so there are actually four very simple rules. Um, you know, if there's I think if there's like more than three or something like that alive, then it dies of overcrowding. If there's less than two, then it dies of loneliness. Um, things like this, right? Very simple rules. Um, but from these very simple rules, and you can you, you can encode the game of life with, with one line of, of code, you know, using s certain languages. Um, and you know, with this very very simple four rules, you get you know astonishingly complex behavior emerges you know so you get spaceships that will scuttle across the screen you know emitting projectiles you know that that interact with other species uh, other kind of uh, critters that emerge on, on the screen you know it's ever changing so you know when people started seeing particularly with the dawn of the of the digital revolution when you could actually um visualize these things on a computer well you know when john conway invented the game of life you had to you do it on a chessboard basically um or on paper or something you know it was crazy you know an inordinate amount of time to actually observe what's going on but with the um, the advent of, of, of personal home computers you can uh, you can run the game of life very very simply and you can you know you, you can observe this this behavior and there, you know there are people that still are finding new structures uh, new behaviors, new new systems, uh, you know, new complex, new com forms of complexity that emerge within this uh, digital universe, this two-dimensional digital universe. Um, so it's it's not a huge leap to go from there, uh, this simple two-dimensional universe from which you know simple rules give rise to complex behavior, to think about well, what's happening at the ground of our reality? You know, is our reality a you know a high-dimensional cellular automaton? operating according to very very simple rules and i think yes that's probably the case and i'm you know i'm not alone in that regard so is the reason why you love 8-bit art the reason why you live in japan <laughs> no it's call it a happy coincidence um <laughs> yeah i mean i love japan i've always loved japan since i was a teenager um i don't know why i just think it's, it's a fascinating culture um and yeah i've always wanted to learn japanese and, and live in japan but i got the opportunity about four years ago it's just you know my contract ended at the university i was working at in the uk and um there was a position in in japan uh, in, in my kind of field at a university so um yeah i just got the opportunity so it, but yeah it, it it doesn't do any harm um my interest in eight bit but it's it's not directly it's not you know the, the sole reason why i came to japan now i've always been interested in Jap japanese culture uh i uh never been there yet i plan to go but i don't want to go there for like a week like you know i want to be there for a bit longer and uh I have what I like is that uh, I like the the old ancient culture and also that uh, they have the future culture, so they have like the b both sides. Yeah, that, this is what's so fascinating. You have this um, this juxtaposition of a very ancient, uh, extremely characteristic um, traditions and cultures and customs, um, you know, mixed in with this extremely forward-looking you know futuristic 
um, modern culture as well, you know, robots and, um, you know, all that, you know, computer games and, um, you know, all of that kind of thing and, you know, animation and stuff. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. And to, particularly when you go to, you know, places like Tokyo, of course, where you literally, you know, you can turn around the corner in a street and, you know, from a, a temple and then you suddenly you're in this kind of luminous, um you know elect electric city kind of place you know it's uh yeah really really uh, fascinating yeah. you could spend a lifetime in tokyo and you still wouldn't <laughs> see you know 20 percent of it you know so yeah you need more than a week for sure even just to explore tokyo i imagine that there are some slobs or sloppy people there but my my impression is that at least the people who are artisans that they like dedicate themselves to learn something for 20 years and like they do it properly. And I remember I was studying um, Aikido many years ago and we were learning a certain technique and to, for two weeks and then we learned a new technique for the next two weeks. And I asked them like how long do they learn this first technique in Japan and they said uh, for two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they are. I mean, that's uh, that's one of their strengths in a way. Is it? But you know, you it, but it requires a lot of dedication. You know, if, if you want to become a, you know, but you know, these great artists, as you say, you know, whether it's uh, someone who makes uh, ceramics or whether it's someone who makes uh, swords, um, you know, these things are often passed down from generation to generation, and these are absolute masters. And as you say, you know, it's it's life a lifelong dedication. It's not just a, um, um, you know, just kind of. Uh, dallying with something or you know teasing yourself but it's actually uh, dedicating your entire life um, your entire being um, with you know in, in the pursuit of, of mastering this art and that's that's kind of rare these days I think um, most people uh, want to you know you know learn you know learn the learn the piano in in six days you know it's 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 that kind of thing right you know learn to read six books in an hour you know everyone wants to do things very very quickly um, People don't want to spend, you know, learn to uh, learn to make a ceramic pot in 30 years. You know, they don't want to do that. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it's it's a, it's, it, it, you know, they hold on to these these traditions very, very strongly. And they're very, and rightly so. You know, they don't want to lose them to modernity. So they embrace modernity very much. Uh, but they also they also hold on to these fundamental you know principles of, of tradition and you know discipline perseverance and all of that kind of thing yeah so it's, it's fascinating this psychedelic renaissance that we're in there's um, big parts of the world where there's indigenous cultures that use psychedelics and then there's other parts of the world where the uh, people behind the renaissance i mean the speakers and the authors and that uh, in many countries and but japan uh, there's nothing from japan uh, is there anything like that in in japan any psychedelic culture at all there is uh, it's it, it's very much kind of hidden and, and, and underground because you know unfortunately the one kind of negative aspect of japan is it's kind of absorbed too much i think of, of really of, of western attitudes to drugs um it's kind of ironic really but um you know japan has uh, adopted these extremely strict laws against drugs and and um, you know education on drugs is, is pretty poor um, as it is, you know, across the world, you know, it's improving, uh, you know, uh, in many countries now, fortunately, uh, particularly in, in Europe and the United States. But but Asia is, I think, is still is still plagued a little bit by 
these uh, antiquated sort of attitudes to drugs that, that come from uh, you know the age of you know the era of you know just say no and that kind of thing so yeah there is a, there is a, a culture um but it, it's it's quite difficult to get at um unless you know certain people because it's it is very well hidden people don't advertise the fact that they're uh, you know they're they're interested in in psychedelics so much um but you know weird i mean japan has a more of a problem with methamphetamine than it does with with psychedelics i mean people aren't uh, well i mean no country I, I think has a problem with psychedelics i think you know i think so socially psychedelics are beneficial if anything um but yeah so so japan has these these kind of antiquated attitudes of, of you know all drugs are bad and kind of lumps them together uh, but really it's, it's methamphetamine that that japan does have a kind of a problem with abuse of uh, but that goes along with their their kind of work culture if you like you know so it's not surprising that, that many japanese are using stimulants to get through their working life um and you know cannabis is, is demonized you know as much as methamphetamine really because it's associated with um, lassitude and uh, poor work ethic you know and uh, laziness and sluggishness that kind of thing you know of course kind of not true but uh, it has that that image but most japanese people that you would meet on the street don't really know much about psychedelics and um you know um so yeah so th there is a culture there but i don't think it's as it's certainly nothing like the culture the psychedelic culture that we have in, in the west the only psychedelic thing i ever seen from japan is not really from japan but the movie enter the void takes place in tokyo but uh, where he, this guy smokes dmt probably it does it's not clear but that's the only instance yeah yeah for I me mean, for sure enter the void but i mean they're western guys you know aren't they so um so yeah um there are there is a sort of an underground club culture that will use psychedelics uh, they use uh, lsd uh, specifically because it's you know it's easy to get into the country um but also mdma to some extent um but you know it is it is it is pretty underground yeah i imagine i could imagine like lots of western hippies take lsd and go to those temples uh, you know it could be the new goa <laughs> yeah for sure yeah uh, i mean i know i know people um western people and japanese people uh, that that do take psychedelics and, and that are very interested in psychedelics um so it, you know it's certainly it's, it's it's not unheard of and you know it's kind of, when you I mean when you look at some of the anime um, that's produced in japan you 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 have to wonder um whether the the creators were uh, you know on something so yeah I, i think it's probably more prevalent than um anyone would like to admit certainly that more prevalent than the government would like to admit or even the average japanese person probably imagines that nobody in japan takes drugs uh, which is you know completely ridiculous um, but that's kind of it's part again part of their their culture they don't, they don't like to admit when um something isn't the way that it should be in their mind i guess um um so so yeah i think there's probably more um more psychedelic drug taking in japan than than anyone would care to admit yeah maybe it's not good if they embrace it i mean i mean one big thing about a proper psychedelic experience if it's a healing psychedelic experience is that 
you might uh, have to face your own shame and bad behavior and uh, that's i mean at least stereotypically that's not what japanese people face in a good way <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's it's it's that's possible yeah i mean japan is a yeah it's a shame based culture um as opposed to a, a guilt based culture so you know the you know, as as an individual in, in in a Western country, if whether or not I take drugs, for example, would be based upon my own feeling. You know, if I feel feel that drugs there's nothing wrong with me taking psychedelics, then I will happily take psychedelics. I will not feel guilty, and therefore that won't stop me. Whereas in Japan, uh, what's more important is what other people think. If whether other people are going to be ashamed of you. Um, so if 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 your family think that taking psychedelics is uh, you know, is 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 the worst thing in the world. You know, and that you're a terrible son or daughter for taking psychedelics. Then uh, the shame is going to be a much bigger deterrent. Whereas in the West, I think you would, um, it would be you'll be a decision you would make personally based upon your own feelings about it. So yeah, that that could be a difference. So writing this book uh, and doing this this research, is there any hope that uh, there will ever be like a clear defined answer to all these questions regarding psychedelics uh well i mean how long is a piece of string i think this is yeah this is what we're kind of working towards and my my, my feeling with regards to um psychedelics particularly dmt is that we need to approach it um with with you know a rational thinking mind that doesn't mean we should be um assuming that i mean many scientists will, will will approach psychedelics approach dmt with the assumption that it's hallucinations and that it can be all explained in terms of hallucinations but i don't think that's a particularly scientific approach i think a more scientific approach is to think well it could be hallucinations or it could be something else and, and let's try and work out what it is i think dmt is far far stranger um than that i think it's um uh, I think it's facile to just say it's hallucinations. And, you know, I've written a lot about this and I think I'm justified in saying that it, it's very difficult to explain away the DMT state as simple hallucination. So so I think it's 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 difficult for someone, you know, there's there's always you have to tread this line between um rigid um scientific ideology and assumptions about what isn't and is and isn't possible. Uh, and then on the other end, you've got this, what I think is very, very unhelpful kind of mythologizing uh, when people start talking about, um, you know, oh, it's 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 the, it's the plant spirit interacting with the brain or things like this. You know, I'm not I'm not dismissing that kind of these kind of traditional uh, ways of viewing the world, but they're, they're very much linked to that culture. When you start kind of appropriating ideas from shamanic cultures and trying to incorporate into this muddled worldview, um, I don't think you get anywhere. You know, when people start saying that DMT opens the third eye, um, you know, activates the pineal or, you know, the, the Kundalini energy or something like that, I don't think that helps at all uh, because it's it, you, you're kind of mixing and matching with, with these particular kind of Eastern um, philosophies in order to, to come to some of muddled worldview. And you're not really uh, any closer to any uh, answers when you when you do that you know it, it's perhaps some sense of self-satisfaction that it's clear in your head uh, but I think you know that's it's not satisfactory for me which is why I've always tried to keep one foot in um, 
neuroscience in you know this kind of the the, the the science that I the scientific disciplines within which I received my training over the last you know decade or so um, but also to reach out beyond this rather restricted scientific arena and actually entertain possibilities that some would consider to be quite uh, wild or, or out there so to speak so yeah it's it's difficult uh, but that's that's the game I think with DMT I don't think it's very slippery it's a very slippery beast and I it's not going to be easy to to actually really understand what exactly what DMT is uh, and what it's doing um, but you know my my kind of goal personal goal really is just to throw ideas out there to actually bring something new some new ideas to the table and say hey have you thought about it like this maybe we can think about it in this way and that's really where the book came from it's it's uh, you know i call it a textbook from the future it's kind of um you know if if in 30 years time we were describing you know we'd actually kind of figured this out and there was a textbook that actually explained all of it that we'd worked out that it would look perhaps something like this book that i've written uh, you know i'm not saying that everything you know within this book is 100 percent 100% true because you know, we can never really know but it's it's kind of a working idea that I'm you know developed over the last few years what I like about the indigenous cultures that use psychedelics and it's always for most of my exper- psychedelic experience has been through their uh, eyes or uh, perspective is that they don't really have any questions or what could it be or they every all their questions are answered and it's nothing strange and it's basically as simple as uh, making a cup of tea and what what that is you know they and they understand everything in it and it's not a mystery and it's so, such a big part of their culture that they don't even i guess question it it's just normal yeah no i agree entirely and this is why one has to be a little bit careful about you know, appropriating these ideas from these cultures, you know, to them, they, they, you know, they take ayahuasca, they meet these spirits. Uh, and, you know, as you say, it's, 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 it, they talk to these spirits or these beings or these intelligences, you know, or mother ayahuasca, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they speak to them as if they're talking to their next door neighbor. And it's to them, it's perfectly natural. They don't need an explanation of where did it come from? Um, or, you know, why does it appear? Or is it real? Or is it not real to them? It's just, it's the experience that that is, that is it. And, and in a sense, it, it is real, you know, um, that they, they are having this experience. They are speaking to this, this being, whatever it is, um, uh, whether it's, you know, a fragment of their unconscious mind or whether it's a spirit from, from the forest, you know, it doesn't matter to them. They just, you know, they know it as, as, as what it appears as. And that's, that's, um, and that's as far as it goes. And, you know, this is a perfectly valid way of, of approaching it. Um, so this is why I think, you know, when you start taking these ideas and use it in your own way to kind of fashion um, some kind of constructed hypothesis of what's going on, I think you're in very, very shaky, shaky ground because you're appropriating something that you don't really, you can never really understand unless you, you know, you were born and grew up and lived this life within this culture, um, which is why I, I don't take that approach. I don't dismiss it. I don't think it. These are, um, you know, savages that have got you know a- antiquated ideas at all. You know, I think that the way they see the world is is just as valid as the way we see the world. But we choose um, to take a different approach. We choose to actually try and examine cause and effect, to examine you know the structure of things, and try and work out and you know play this little game of. Uh, of, of you know where are we and how did we get here and and that kind of thing, so um, 
you know, I think one has to be careful of, of, of where one, one treads, um, which is why, I, as I say, I, I always try to stay within within what I know, within within the minor kind of, uh, you know, my particular kind of scientific disciplines, but not being restricted to them. Do you think there is a small chance or a big chance that when in the future, when we find out all the answers, that it's just like, uh, it just affects the brain and it's just basically just a, uh, You're just tricking your mind. Well, I mean, this is always this is always one of the possibilities, right? You know, that we have this. There are a number of possible explanations, um, and you know that explanation that would be the orthodox scientific explanation is it's just changing brain activity, and that's the end of the story. Um, and you know, there's ninety nine percent really of, of scientists would take that position. So, you know, one has to bat for the underdog i guess you know and that's my approach is actually i'm not going to go down that that obvious route um uh, you know even if it's for some would say it's oh it's the more likely explanation um i don't think so um but even if it was i would still think that it would it's worthwhile to be a contrarian and to actually entertain um um these ideas you know that, that actually dmt is actually more than just hallucination and it's consensus in science is 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 rarely a good thing when everyone agrees with each other uh, you know it's it's you, you you everything becomes bogged down and 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 science doesn't proceed you need someone to think differently and say actually i'm going to think you know this is where you know you know relativity came from this is you know quantum you know these ideas of actually smashing paradigms uh, is is it's really important you need someone to think slightly differently and i'm not comparing myself to you know albert einstein by any stretch of the imagination but um, i've always been attracted to the slightly weird uh, and unusual explanations for things and um, so that's going to you know what i'm doing is, is is going down this route you know will it ultimately mean that i'm you know embarrassing myself and that actually it's, it's something far simpler and much more prosaic perhaps but you know it doesn't matter you know it's um, the important point is these the curiosity and the willingness to go to places perhaps that other people don't want to go as scientists what i find interesting is that every time in a psychedelic experience where i've had those thoughts or oh this is just my brain this is not real or it's not it's a trick of the mind every time i go down that route the psychedelic trip usually goes bad or i start to feel nauseous if it's ayahuasca especially you i start to feel sick or dizzy at those points or if it's any other psychedelic it turns on you a bit i mean that's my experience like it gets angry like how could you think that <laughs> yeah yeah i mean Yeah, that's that's not that's not uncommon actually. You know, you have to be a little bit careful um, where you know the way that you interact with these these intelligences. They they can certainly have a you know, a range of apparent moods and, and characters, ranging from you know purely kind of beneficent amorphous beings of light, all the way to extremely kind of uh, extremely vicious and, and kind of nasty. Uh, and that can vary, you know, across time and depending on your own particular attitude. So, yeah, it's um, it's a very, very bizarre territory and it's, uh, you know, replete with, uh, you know, this, this huge panoply of, of, of intelligences, of, of varying characters. So if people want to read your book, where can they get it? They can now go to Amazon, um, just search for Alien Information Theory. Uh, and it's, it came out on Tuesday, so the book is available and shipping and so... Yep, they can have it in a few days. Highly recommended, <laughs> obviously. 
Do you have any other websites that people can go look at? Yes, for sure. If you go to um, www.buildingalienworlds.com, all one word, Building Alien Worlds, uh, you can find um, kind of a preview of the book. There's uh, me reading the first chapter. Um, also, all of my academic papers and my articles that I've written, as well as some YouTube lectures and interviews, podcasts that I've done, um, some slideshows from lectures that I've given. Yeah, basically. And there's a contact page as well. So if you know, anyone wants to drop me a line and message and ask me any questions or anything like that, then they can also do that. Great. Thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to be on the podcast. You're welcome. It's been great. It's been very interesting. If you want to check out Andrew R. Gallimore's work some more, go to buildingalienworlds.com. And if you want to support the podcast, please become a patron or just follow the podcast in social media. All the links can be found in the program notes and on nationalbornalchemist.com. And I appreciate all the support. Now, since we talked a lot about Japan in this episode, I figured I'll close this episode with a classic anime theme song. The opening credit music from Full Metal Alchemist. Freedom is in the mind. Sakara, Tosa, Kate, and Kinino.